mental toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. Each week, Dr. Rob sits down with athletes, executives, and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment. Here's your host, Dr. Rob. And so I had this aha moment where it was like, if I can't control what's in my head, what do I actually have control of? I don't have control of anything. And that brought me so much freedom in my heart and in my soul, because all, at that very moment, I stopped controlling everything in my life. I stopped trying to control the outcomes of everything. Now, does that mean that you don't show up? No, you show up. You show up with your heart. Folks, when I finished my 100 miler, I was happy to be done, but I wasn't finished. The reason why my legs weren't completely bonked from running was that I used PR lotion by Momentus. It simply eliminated any lactic acid buildup in my legs, and it's the best product I've ever used. Momentus is a leading nutrition and supplement company which works with over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. No other company has the accolades of being awarded six innovation contracts from the Department of Defense for Human Performance. Since I started using PR Lotion, I now use their plant-based protein, collagen peptides, and recovery formula. Look, if performing is important to you, do yourself a favor. Go to livemomentous.com. And for listening today, you get the best part, a discount. Enter code DRB20 for 20% off your order. That's DRB and the number 20. LiveMomentous.com. Optimize, perform, and recover. LiveMomentous.com. So our guest today on episode 98 of 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, legendary paddler, kayaker. He's made over 50 first descents all around the world. He changed the sports, the sport in the 90s. Okay, so who we're interviewing today, he's, he's a dog. He's a dog mentality. When you transcend anything in the sport, that makes you a dog. He's won an Emmy with his kayaking documentary, Andes to Amazon. Uh, he's a member of International Whitewater Hall of Fame. He is the River Runner documentary on Netflix. And the reason why I say he is because this is the the River Runner is an incredible documentary and it all focuses on him because kayaking is the vehicle, but his life is the story. And I'm excited to really get in this today. Our guest today is Scott Lindgren. Scott, thanks so much for joining us, buddy. Oh, thanks for having me. So Super. I need... I need to start out with this, man. For those like who follow, I'm a sports nerd and, and I really get into this. I try my best to prep for all my interviews. And in my research, right, I came across these stories that you were dead. So I'm glad you're alive, man. Oh my gosh. This has been absolutely one of the most surreal things that's happened in this whole this whole sort of journey I've been on with the River Runner. Um, literally 
right as the river runner was released somewhere out of Asia, somebody released a, um, thing online that basically said that I was dead and it was extensive and it caught on to the algorithms. And at first I was like, Oh my God, this is not a big deal. You know, it, it'll go by the wayside. And then it just kind of compounded. And then all of a sudden I ended up with family and friends and friends of friends and the producers of the film all reaching out. And, and, and then there were YouTube videos that were made that basically were doing, you know, like really intricate YouTube videos that were made that were basically like, you know, Scott Lindgren has passed and they went into grave detail about my history and the sport. And, and um, yeah, it just turned into this like thing. And, and I'm not, you know, a celebrity of sort. I don't have a huge following on social media. So it wasn't like I was able to reach out to the world and squash it. And so even to this day, when you Google my name, it comes up in like the top 10 things and you go onto YouTube and you Google my name and there's, a, you know, a couple videos. Um, it, it definitely has worked its way out of the algorithm a little bit. Um, but for a while there, when you Googled or DuckDuckGo would my name, like the first 10 things that came up was my death, which was just bizarre to me. We couldn't figure yeah. out why, um, you know, I had heard that it had happened to Alex Hanold actually a few years ago and, and, um, but, you know, but he's got a little bigger voice than me and he was able to squash it. Whereas, you know, I wasn't able to squash it. I reached out to Google and, you know, it was just ignored. So yeah, yeah. here I am alive and well. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's fascinating, man. Cause I was like, man, I'm don't think that's true. I know I'm interviewing this, but then even reading the article, right? I mean, but that was, I guess, the job of it got me on there to click and kind of follow. And I guess that was the whole point of it. But it's fascinating. What, what, yeah, sorry not to interrupt you, but yeah, hundred percent. And the other thing that's crazy is that you read the first paragraph and for sure I'm dead. And then you get into the second paragraph, and it's basically yet they say um something along the lines of like yet to be confirmed. Right. So the whole thing is just, it's a scam and, 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 um, it's disinformation and it's disheartening. Right. Because now, you know, I always kind of felt like the internet was a crazy place to get your information, you know, because of disinformation. But after this experience, man, it just, it's really hard to tell what truth is anymore. And, and that's pretty sad. Yeah, absolutely, ma'am. Mm. So, so let's start with this. I mean, and and we're going to go down the whole goal because the river runner, I just felt, I mean, I, I thought it was just fantastic way to put it together, but I'm going to start sort of at the beginning since we're going to do a deep dive today. Your goal was to paddle the, the four great Himalayan rivers of Mount Kailash. And I think starting at the childhood though, man, I mean, San Bernardino and you grew up and you grew up hard. I mean, that was tough, man. I mean, walk us through kind of what that was like. And then, you know, one of those incidences that happened. Um, you know, I grew up in the Central Valley um, and and then moved down to San Bernardino. So, you know, it was Visalia, it was Fresno, San Bernardino. Uh, I kind of, I kind of, um, the way I kind of tell people is kind of the armpit of California, you know, um, a little bit. And you know, our, you know, at home, everything was safe. My mom was an amazing mom. Um, but, you know, as I said in the film, when I walked out the front door, it was a little different story. And in San Bernardino in particular, the neighborhood that I grew up in, 
you know, it was a little bit of a flip. I was a minority uh, in the neighborhood. There weren't too many white families in our neighborhood. There was, um, you know, I went to a school that was um, culturally diversified and, 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 um, you know, San Bernardino is, uh, is an interesting place. It, you know, it's the lowest income county in, in the state of California. It's mostly, um, back in those days, it was uh, farming, agriculture, orange groves, and a military base. And, and, um, we grew up off of, um, the street called, we, we lived on church and 14th and it was basically two blocks off of baseline and baseline is the main drag that kind of goes straight through San Bernardino. And that's kind of where all the action happened. And, you know, we were just exposed to a lot of things that I feel like, you know, not, not a lot of kids get exposed to it at such an early age. And, and I think that that really sculpted, uh, a lot you know, for my, my brother and I in, in, in how we, you know, kind of perceived and dealt with things. I think we were in flight or fight a lot as kids. And, um, we, you know, we, we learned how to embrace that and operate within that. And, and it definitely helped, um, in some ways and, and, and in other ways it, it, it held me back. And so, you know, cause I imagine, you having your brother along with you in that journey was, was at least powerful. But I mean, you even were jumped and you got stabbed, man, as a kid. When, when, when that happens, I mean, walk us through again, what happened and then how does that shape you when, when you're that young? Yeah. You know, I, I remember, you know, having that conversation with my brother, I remember running in and, and having a hole in my shoulder and, you know, as I said in the film, again, you know, it was one of those situations where I was so protective of my mom and I didn't want to, you know, I was kind of, you know, I had to put on this persona of being tough because you were, if you had any, if you showed any sort of weakness, um, you know, you would just get annihilated. And so I, I just threw it under the rug and buried it. And was, you know, just chalked it up as a, as another fist fight and, and, and me being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and, uh, you know, I, I really feel like when you're a kid, you have this ability just to, you know, at least some kids, you know, especially when you've been exposed over and over and over again to push things away. Right. And then, um, you know, obviously as you push those things away and, and, you get older in life, it's pretty amazing how those things that you've pushed away your entire life start to show up as an adult and in your behaviors and in your actions. And, and, and that was the case for me, you know, I was able to just push it and shove it underneath the rug and, and downstream, you know, moving, you know, let's move forward. And, and that's what really helped me be so successful with kayaking was that I just had this downstream mentality where I was able to just, um, you know, push things under the rug. If a friend drowned in front of me or if something bad happened on the river, I was able to stay calm. I was able to deal with it. And then I was able to shove it, um, shove it away. And, 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 and that really is a mentality that you need to be successful in running big, you know, uh, river expeditions. And, and, and that childhood upbringing really, really propelled and helped my behaviors to succeed in, in, in whitewater. 
Mm-hmm. And I can't wait to uncover that and get into it. Um, before we kind of get into that coping and that drive, that dog mentality, I mean, talk about getting into the sport in general and and what I'm curious about, man, is your overall connection like with the river, you know, whether it was like Glacier Bay or, you know, you know, Black Sea or something like that. But what, what was the connection like, man, first getting into it and, and what it did for you? Well, so, you know, I I had always played sports as a kid. I was way into soccer. Um, sports were kind of the only thing that I connected with. I struggled through school, even though I got decent grades, I kind of struggled through it. I had, you know, I had trouble learning something that I didn't want to learn. You know, I, I was really, you know, uh, interested in, in a lot of different things and, and school just wasn't one of them. Um, and sports was, you know, a huge sort of thing that helped me, um, stay on track and it, and it kept me out of trouble when I was playing sports. I, you know, for the most part was able to stay out of trouble. And when I wasn't playing sports, I found myself getting in trouble a lot. And so when I found the river, it was, um, it was an outlet and it was amazing. And it was in a, it was in a different sort of environment. It was outdoors and there were very few rules um, you know, and, you know, a river's free flowing, it's changing all the time. It's never the same. Um, there's a, there's an aspect of, of this like incredible power that you're trying to stay in control of and, and life is fragile within that power. And, um, as, as a kid, when I first was kind of introduced to it, I just instantly had this respect and connection with it and it really changed the way I was operating at the time. At the time it was, I was in high school, I was, you know, playing sports and stuff, but I was just, you know, barely getting through school. I was partying all the time. You know, I didn't really have much direction. Um, I had moved around a lot as a kid. I'd gone to nine different schools before the, before I graduated from high school. So there was, you know, a constant disposition of, you know, meeting new friends and and that sort of thing. And, and it just brought this sort of, uh, element, this peaceful element to me and, um, this escape and, and then, the scope of it was, you know, I, I realized very early on that, that there were rivers everywhere in the world and, and what a way to actually potentially go and see the world and the, in the people that were within sort of rafting and kayaking at the time all had sort of similar stories to mine. And, and, and that really helped me as well. And, and that just, you know, changed everything. And, and it wasn't, I think it was probably my second or third river trip when I realized that, you know, this was something that really sang to my heart and was something that I wanted to do. Love it, man. When, so you get into the sport, I mean, you even start your own productions and you kind of talk about that in, in the documentary as well, how that, you know, you know, became part of its entity upon itself. I mean, let me ask you this, man, when you were at your best, all right. I mean, you're living on the edge. I mean, you got a sick drop or you got a chain, you know, of rapids that are coming up, man. Talk about, 
talk about that that moment for you and, and what that like peak performance was was like. Well, it it happened it happened slowly, like with anything that you know, they always say ten thousand hours. Um I I personally feel that with kayaking to really get to the upper echelons of the sport, it's a minimum 10 year investment. You know, all of the, the kids that are at the top of their game, most of them have started as kids and are in their late twenties. Um, it just takes an insane amount of practice, uh, to get, to a space to where you can make it second nature. And then it's even when you do make it second nature, it's still incredibly humbling um, because of just the, um, the river's unpredictability and you trying to stay in control in an uncontrollable thing. And, and, and it's a moving medium. It's not something that's stagnant. So it's, it's, it's just really complex and it takes a really long time to get there. And I kind of remember a moment it's actually in the film when it, it, it's it's called Scott's Drop now it's obviously named after me but um, this is like 1998 or 97 and I was 28 29 years old and and um, when that drop when I ran that drop it was at the time probably one of the bigger things that had ever been run in a kayak and I remember sitting at the bottom of that thing after pulling that off and having this sort of feeling of like I think I just like peaked at, you know, I feel like I just got to a space that I had always dreamed about getting to, but had become like this reality. And, and it also then questioned me like, okay, well, how much further do I want to take this? Because I felt at that time I had lost so many friends to the sport, you know, and, and, and I don't want to, people to understand that like river travel is extremely safe, right? Class two, class three, class four river trips with your family on, on a rafting trip or even a kayaking trip are extremely safe. And, and what I'm talking about here is definitely um, a class five, which is up, up the upper, upper echelons of the sport. Um, it, it just brings in a whole nother level of, of danger. And so, um, and, and I knew that I was tiptoeing and, and that's how I've always operated on the river. Like I said, it's one of the only things I had respect for. And, and, and I would tiptoe with the utmost respect, knowing that life was extremely fragile within, within that sort of box. And it, it then, I then became sort of, I got to the space where I had the opportunity to start to travel and to travel the world with it. And kayaking really wasn't, didn't have sport sponsorship, like other sports. It was really the beginning of all of that. And so one of the ways that I was able to sort of afford to be able to do all these crazy trips was, is to get into the filmmaking business and to start making films about it. And, and that's, that's when really we were able to open up the book and start looking at maps all over the world. And I was in my mid twenties, early to mid twenties at that time. And, and I was able to, you know, eke out a living and, and I stopped raft guiding and, 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 
and I was able to just solely focus on running the biggest, baddest rivers in the world. And, and that was the, you know, the, the turning point. And then I just went on a, a tear for the next 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. When, when you talk about like losing friends to the river, I mean, especially in the movie, I mean, talk about Chuck Kern. <clears throat> when that happened, what, what did that do um, for your mentality, for your friendships and how you approached you know, life at the time. Yeah. I, I, I clinched down, um, you know, prior to Chuck and prior to that year in 1997, I mean, we had lost a friend or two up until 97. Um, but when we lost Chuck and then we lost six others within a 12 month period of time, um, you know, I, I took about four months off, from kayaking, um, John and Willie Kern, Chuck's brother, were you know we were all three, and Chuck is and Chuck as well. We're all three super close. We were all running rivers together, um, and when we lost him, um, obviously we questioned what we were doing, you know, um, and 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 then we kind of got to the space where it was like we don't really know much else. We're really good at this. And then it was like, okay, well, do we continue or do we stop? And then we asked ourselves, well, what would Chuck want us to do? And for sure he would want us to continue. And then it was more like a spirit in the sky. And so once we kind of transitioned all of that and turned that into motivation instead of a, you know, a pullback, um, it was like, um, you know, full throttle at that point. Um, and we tightened our group and I became extremely, um, vocal about any sort of emotional instability. Um, cause insta- emotional instability on the river just does not work when you're running super hard rivers. You can't have somebody emotionally breaking down at the top of a drop or in the middle of a river Canyon. You need people that are completely keel in the most insane sort of environment and, and that can make great decisions. And if you've got, if, if you've got somebody that's not emotionally holding it together or showing vulnerabilities and they're paddling, um, it becomes extremely dangerous. Right. And so I would be, um, super vocal and, and, and ostracized. I wouldn't be afraid because of the consequences that were in play. And, and I knew how detrimental that was to the team and to the group and, and how that could, uh, keep us from living out these dreams of traveling the world and running rivers. And so I just became harder and harder and harder to the point to where, um, I, you know, would just narrow down and, you know, there were 10 or 15 of us throughout the world that were kind of operating on that level and made it almost impossible for people to break into it. Hmm. You know, so that, that, that badass attitude, right? Like harden the fuck up. I mean, you talk about it a lot in the, in the river and in the river runner in the documentary, um, it served you well on the river. I mean, it, it, it drove you. Yeah. But my question is this man is in like, I don't want to jump ahead because I want to talk about like the culture of it later on, but like, how would you have 
done things differently? Like, how would you have compartmentalized that mentality? Because it makes sense, right? Like from my standpoint, it's like, here's the solution, everything, just work harder, Mm. right? Whatever it is, just work harder. And if you've got Mm. that, you you just got to, you got to shore up whatever the weakness is and, but working harder doesn't, it works until it doesn't work. And, and we can talk about like the, the party and stuff like that later, but it's like, man, how, how would you have done things differently? It was tricky because I didn't have the tools as a kid. I was in flight or fight my whole life. And then um, I think what made it worse was that I was getting accolades for the behavior. Right. And the word that you use that is absolutely spot on is compartmentalize. Right. I didn't know how to compartmentalize my behavior on the river um, from my life off of the river. And so I was basically taking what was making me successful on the river and I was intricately putting it into everything off of the river. And, and to make things worse, I was getting patted on the back and, and, um, held up on a pedestal for the example, Scott. Well, like for instance, you know, I would, I would just be able to, you know, like say like in a relationship with somebody like say your partner or your girlfriend or something and your girlfriend, you know, might be having like a bad day or something, you know, or struggling through something. And I would just have very little compassion um, for somebody that was struggling. I would just be like, what are you crying about? You know, like harden the fuck up. Like we're moving downstream. It's not a big deal. Like shove that under the bridge, you know? Um, And, uh, and that behavior was super successful in the river, but right. How does that work with, you know, somebody that you love and is supposed to care about, you know, and, and it doesn't, right. And unless you've got somebody uh, as a partner that is sort of wired the same way that understands that behavior, but then even then it becomes, you know, I was so on the other side that, you know, I flew through a lot of female partners in my life because I would just burn them out with the behavior. Um, and yeah, compartmentalizing was something that I just didn't have really great awareness around. And I struggled to articulate how I was feeling and I didn't really show emotional, uh, instability. I tried to hold it, um, as, as much as I possibly could. I, I'd very rarely let go. Um, or talk about things that were um, grinding on me or holding me back. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense, man. I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, what would, um, you know, after a run, I mean, what was the partying like for you? Well, so, you know, when, when you do a super hard run, you're doing these expeditions and you're going into these places, right? They're, they're like intergalactic, you're, you're basically uh, going into zones that very few people have hung out in, period. Right. Um, and you're operating, you're tiptoeing, you're, you know, making moves that are threatening your life, you know, for days and days on end. And you're holding this incredible space, right? And there's really nothing that that competes with it, at, at least for the time, nothing competed with it. And I would come off. And everything, you know, it would be a celebration vendor or it would be, 
you know, uh, um, you know, if the trip went bad, it would, you know, we would send it the other way. It was a coping mechanism that we used um, all of the time. And it really filled a void in replacing what we were experiencing on the river. You had this incredible high, these incredible experiences with, you know, these people that, you know, I, I liken it to going to war with someone. You know, and you're put in these situations where you're relying on a on a partner or a teammate and, you know, you when you're in fight or flight, you know, you develop these deep connections because you viscerally see someone at their core and what, how they operate at their core. Right. And in, in normal conversation or when you meet someone in a in a in a popular setting, you, you know, and, and you you give out an impression or you give out a first impression. A lot of times it's a disguise, right? You don't really know that person. And it takes a while to get to know someone at their core, right? Well, when you go do a river trip with someone, all of that is exposed really quickly. You get to know someone right away, right? There's no hiding um, when you're running a super hard river with someone, um, you can, you can get away with it for a little bit, but eventually it comes out super quick. And then you instantly know who you connect with and who you don't. There's no facade, zero. And I just, um, I was, I, I lived for that. And, and I, the people that I connected on the river with became my closest friends and, nothing competed with doing these super hard river trips and reality and the rest of life. And the only coping mechanisms that we had at the time were to inebriate or to, you know, send, send a bender. And, and so you end up in this, you know, um, this high and, you know, these, these, these sort of transitions, I should say of, you know, um, healthy, unhealthy, healthy, unhealthy, you know, and, 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 and that ended up really being a hard transition for me because then when kayaking was essentially taken away, right. Then all I had left was the unhealthy and the healthy was no longer, the balance was no longer there. And then it just kilted. Um, yeah. to and then, and then how do you make that stop when you've been doing the same thing for, you know, 20 plus years, it's, it, it becomes really hard. And then how do you connect? Because now you're not connecting because everything that you've connected to is no longer um, there for you. Right. So at the essence of when, when you're at your best and when you do a first ascent and you rage and everything goes great, how long did that feeling last for you? Mm -hmm. A lot of times it depended on what was at stake. Um, you know, if in the early days before I started making movies and stuff like that, you know, uh, from like say 19 to 24, 25, I was working as a raft guide and I was just basically running over to Asia and I was doing three, four months a, uh, a year in Asia, just running super hard rivers. And, you know, I would, I remember coming home from Asia a lot, uh, in those early days and, I would, I would, you know, it, it's kind of like the endless summer with kayaking. You can chase a season 
you know, all around the world, you know, like in September, everyone goes to Asia in January, everyone goes to South America. You come home to California, you hang out in California, boom, you go straight to Africa. So you can get on this circuit to where there is no downtime. You're just basically traveling. And for me, it resonated with me being on the go because as a child, I had moved around so much as a kid, you know, so many different schools and never really being stable anywhere. And the more I moved around, the better. So, you know, I was paddling, you know, for a huge percentage of my life, I was paddling 250 days a year and traveling, you know, to, to, to do So there was no idling. Um, and so a lot of trips, um, as epic as they would be, would just be turned around right into another trip. Or, you know, there would be, there would be very little time in between sort of each uh, mission that, 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 that was planned out for, for that year. So there was really no downtime. It was just full throttle all the time. And you just develop a, a comfort zone within that. And, and I just really didn't know any different. Yeah. When, when you reflect upon that part right now, um, cause I kind of talk about the mountaintop mentality, right? You meet, reach the mountaintop. It's great, but you got to come back down off the mountaintop. My problem in life is I always want to live up on that mountaintop, right? But nothing lives up there. You have to come back down, but you would just climb another mountain right away. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it was just the same thing. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, and, and, and that, you know, anytime anything became difficult or, you know, my coping mechanism, my number one coping mechanism outside of, you know, inebriating was um, running. You know, I would just run and, you know, it didn't matter if I had a girlfriend or not, or, you know, I, I used to say, um, <laughs> I used to say, if you got to feed it, you don't need it. Um, because if that would just take away from you having this ability to bolt, you know, and it's, it's just literally, I, I never kept a plant. I never had an animal. I never had anything when I was a kid. I literally had an office that I slept in and I was there probably 60 days out of the year. And then the rest of the time I was, I was gone. So you liked, I mean, you love the movie heat then, right? I haven't, I don't know that I've seen heat. Oh, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. He said, People never keep... said I look like Val Kilmer, which is kind of weird. <laughs> I dig it, man. <laughs> but he always said like, keep, keep nothing in your life that you can't run out the door in 60 seconds or less. And that was when you see, when you see the heat around the corner. That's a hundred percent. My life story literally had a bad, uh, a bag packed like all the time and was ready and was buying a plane ticket at the blink of an eye and was, you know, basically traveling somewhere with my kayak to go paddle. Um, were you, were you able to enjoy the process of what you were doing though, and the artistic nature and in the first sense, were you able to enjoy that process? Absolutely loved it. Obsessed with it. Yeah. I loved every aspect of it. I loved the organizing of it. I loved putting it together. I loved calculating. It was like planning for, it was like planning for a mission. It was like planning for a war. It was strategic. It was um, calculated. It was a lot of energy went into, you know, back in those days, this is pre Google earth, you know, and Google maps where you couldn't zoom in on things. We were looking at 
topographical maps and coming up, you know, looking at geology and zones and trying to figure out what made, you know, really cool rivers to run and what, you know, and we, you know, develop the science behind it. And, um, and, and that was super intriguing. And then, you know, diving into the unknown, I embraced that, you know, I, I love the idea of going into a zone where you didn't know what you were getting into and, and taking each horizon line as a new opportunity, a new challenge. And, you know, you, those, you look at the way that I'm describing it, it's such a beautiful metaphor for life. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you're not able like, and I didn't even have the awareness to, to like, I was so focused on the mission that I wasn't able to actually have the awareness to like this beautiful metaphor that laid right in front of me that I basically spent my entire life dedicated to wasn't able to like compartmentalize it and put it into my regular life. I just took the mentality instead of the essence of, you know, um, a river, a free flowing river that's always changing. That's never the same that you're tiptoeing down that you have respect for that you are, uh, essentially, um, uh, intrigued by and, and, you know, you have this deep connection with, and, and, you know, I had very little respect for anything other than my core group of friends that I participated in the behavior with and, and the river, everything mm-hmm. else I just mowed over. Um, and anything that kept me from running, I would mow over. Into the movie when um, the Uganda, when you talk about that, and and that was what Mer- Murchison Falls. How do you pronounce Mer- that? Yeah, Murchison Falls. It's a section. Murchison Falls. Murchison Falls is so. It's it's essentially the White Nile. The, the White Nile has is, is got two major sort of sections of white water on it. The upper section that's just out of Lake Victoria is um, uh, Bujigali Falls, which is a, you know, a, a really famous, was a really famous rafting section and kayaking section um, that is now dammed. And then the, uh, the other section, which is a few days downstream, is uh, Murchison Falls, which is um, the section in the film there that you see. Walk us through where your life was and what was going on and, and the struggles at that point, or even just with that well, run. At, at that point, you know, I had started spending a lot of time in Africa. Um, you know, when I was, when I was a lot younger, say in my, my twenties and in early thirties, most of my big uh, trips and stuff like that, I was spending a lot of time in the Himalayas and uh, I was intrigued, you know, one of the, one of the, one of my team members that was on the same po with me and that I had paddled with a lot was this guy, Steve Fisher. He was a South African kid. And, you know, we became really close and, and Steve was probably pound for pound at the time, the best kayaker in the world. And I was making films. And, and so we kind of hooked up and I hadn't spent much time as a kid in Africa and I really wanted to spend some time there. And so I started going over there quite a bit and, um, I was kind of waiting for things to clear up in Pakistan, you know, to get to the Indus. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there was the war in Kashmir in the nineties that kept me out of Pakistan in the nineties. And then nine 11 went down and Pakistan shut down, you know, in, you know, through the whole Afghan, uh, sort of, uh, Iraq war thing that was going on. Um, 
and I started feeling sick and, and sick is not the right word. I started feeling off and mm-hmm. it wasn't uncommon, you know, like you travel in Africa, you're going to get malaria. You know, if you spend any time over there, you're going to get malaria. Uh, you're, you're going to get Mahazia. You're going to, you're going to get sick. And if you travel as much as, as I was traveling, you know, one of the hardest things about traveling that hard is staying healthy. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly hard to stay healthy. Right. And so on that particular trip, I, um, and even before that, even the year before that, I had started to feel off. I started losing energy. I started losing, you know, I had this unbelievable uh, amount of stamina. I could just go for, you know, 30 days straight, 4,000 calories a day. I mean, I would sometimes jump on a river trip weighing, you know, 170 and come off weighing 150, you know, all the time. I'm sorry. I just love that though. That's, that's great. Yeah. and I, and I totally, um, you know, there's something about suffering that just, that, that, you know, there's, there's just some people that are wired that way. Right. And, and, and I, uh, it's something that I found balance in and, um, I started to lose my ability to hang at the levels that I had been, you know, that I had created for everyone around me. Mm-hmm. And, I started to become a weaker link. And, and, and at this point, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid thirties and I'm definitely, uh, you know, why I'm starting to question, like, it's a kid's game, you know, you can't do this forever. And, and I had moved through now a couple generations of kayakers. Um, you know, the, the folks that I had started with, um, they had all moved on from the sport. Either they had had a bad experience or they had gotten married and started a family or for whatever reason. And, and there just really wasn't many people left in my original core group. And I was now basically paddling with kids that were a lot younger than me. And so I just, uh, and, and then I also too fell into the situation where my only income was making films about this stuff. And so I was still having to put myself in these places to pay the bills. And and then my passion was kind of being sucked dry from having to sell my soul to the sponsorship game a little bit. And, and then I wasn't feeling well on top of that. And so it was like really this perfect storm that was brewing. Um, And uh, yeah, it just, you know, finally on that trip on Murchison, the, I, 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 I had something happen to me that, that had never happened. And, and what was happening was that as I was flipping over uh, upside down in the kayak, um, normally, you know, you have this heightened awareness and you can, any corner that you fall over on, you can run to the opposite corner and write yourself back up. And it's especially on that river with the hippo and croc situation on Murchison Falls. It has the highest concentration of hippos and crocs anywhere in the world. And it's just the last place in the world you want to be upside down in a kayak. And I was, I was basically having, I was struggling with a roll. I was, I, it was the most basic 
thing that you learn right from the beginning of kayaking is is to learn how to write yourself up in, in a river. And, and I was struggling with it all of a sudden out of nowhere. And I was losing spatial awareness upside down. And something I felt was was off. And 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 that was really the trigger that was like, like I I I can't operate at this level if I'm flipping upside down and losing spatial awareness. Must have been a tough spot, man. Cause I mean, in the in the, I think the documentary does a great job about it. I mean, it illustrates how uh how many hippos and crocs are in that area. But I mean, what a space for that to happen, man. Absolutely insane. I mean, it's it's one of those river trips, you know, that is um it's it's just, you know, in a lot of places you worry about the whitewater. You know, you worry about exposure, you worry about, you know, the river rising and falling, you worry about weather, you know, those are your sort of main components, but you throw in a militarized militia and you throw in a wildlife factor. And those are, those are two extra components that, um, you know, take that particular run to the next level. Yeah. And didn't, um, I mean, was that the trip to where a hippo almost like, did it run over your brother? I mean, it was close to like running over, right? Yeah, it, it, that's cool. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, we were, we had a couple chargings on that trip, but one in particular charging where we were trying to scout a rapid and um, we were in um, the brush and uh, you could hear these things. They basically shake the ground when they yeah. run and hippos are fast. Yeah, a it's like people- a bus, man. A lot of people don't realize how quick hippos are. They're insanely fast and they're insanely um, skittish. Um, and obviously, great combo. Yeah, and and and, and people don't um, people don't realize that uh, hippos are more dangerous than anything else in Africa. Yeah. They they kill more people than any anything else. More than crocs. More than lions. More than yeah. anything. They're they're the biggest. Um, and so. Yeah, we we were basically trying to find our way uh, to go take a look at, at, at this one in particular rapid. And my brother had stayed back at the boats and we had kind of made our way. We were making our way back to the boats and, you you know, I could feel the earth moving a little bit. And I, you know, obviously knew what it was. And I ended up crawling up into this like underbrush tree thing and probably about 20 feet away. I heard this thing go running by about 20 miles an hour headed straight for the beach that the boats were parked at. And my brother was sitting on a raft when this thing came out of the brush and was basically, he was running for the river. The the hippo was running for the river because it was spooked by us, obviously wandering around in the bush. And my brother was basically right in line with this thing, you know, running for the river. And he ended up jumping out of the boat and the hippo ended up like splitting in between the two, uh, in between the raft and, and a bunch of the kayaks and stuff. And it was just one of those surreal moments where, you know, you're being charged by a, you know, 2000 pound animal, 2,500 pound animal. And, you know, you're just jumping out of the way. So you don't get pit bulled by this thing. good looking if you like this podcast and are already a badass but it's all way too complicated then visit our website drrobbell.com and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment all right man (laughs) 
and the Crocs, uh, the you know, the Crocs are infamous on that stretch too, and and that was you know obviously, you know, the the reason we bring a raft on the trips is because in the whitewater the Crocs aren't really an issue, but it's the pools right in between the raft. So having the raft there is amazing because you can run a rapid and then the kayaks would get close to the raft. And then if there was a croc situation, we could jump out of the kayak and we'd all get in the raft and float through a lot of the pools and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, that's why my brother was on the trip and, you know, we were there making a film with, uh, Steve Fisher, who was the South African guy and, and it was for his movie. And, and, um, I came off of that trip and, and was like, look, I need to take a break. Um, there's something wrong. And, and, then uh, I, I, yeah, it didn't, it, it got, it got worse. Yeah. I spent about a year, uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And I was finally diagnosed with hypothyroidism, which made can sense. I, can I, uh, can I, can I set it up, Scott? hundred percent. All right, man. The best line in the movie, right? You said you were going to take a break for like three months and it turned into eight years. Yeah. All right, man. Run. Yeah. So, uh, I went, when I came home from Africa, obviously the light switch, um, turned off and I was, my energy levels just fell out from underneath me. I went from, you know, being able to load up a 80, hundred pound kayak and walk over a 15 to 20,000 foot pass for days on end to kayaking 30 days straight, uh, to barely being able to get out of bed. And, um, I, you know, I went to the doctor a bunch to try to figure out what was going on. Nobody thought to really run any sort of blood work that had to do with your thyroid. And, uh, the first sort of symptom sign and symptom that came back was I tested positive for hypothyroidism and and my levels for hypothyroidism were like off the hook, you know, normally you're, you know, for your TSH and your free T4 and T3 and stuff like that. Not that many people would know about that, but you know, like my TSH was like at 75 where you're supposed to be like a one, a one to five in that Mm -hmm. zone. It was just blown out. And, um, I went on thyroid medication and I had an allergic reaction to the synthetic thyroid medication that was available. So I spent another six months chasing, uh, the, like it was like standing on top of a beach ball, right? You're just like trying to find balance. And, and I was going through all these different thyroid medications to try to figure out, you know, something that could work. And then I finally found something. And, but by the time I finally found something and that things had kind of like semi gotten back to normal, I was 18 months in at that point. And I was, you know, I hadn't been able to paddle that much. I was still doing, you know, production work and stuff like that. And I was still, you know, I was still getting by and I was, you know, able to not travel as much and, and stay in the film business and, and, and do that. Um, but intuitively deep down inside, I knew something else was going on. I just didn't know what it was. Um, and I remember at one point I went in and asked a, um, one of my doctors, I was like, Hey, you know, I, I understand that, you know, I need thyroid medication, but in, I, I've been doing some research and I, I kind of feel like my pituitary is something's wrong with my pituitary. And this is something that had come up for me 
And I remember my doctor saying something along the lines of, it doesn't matter if there's something wrong with your pituitary, the treatment is still the same. And had they taken a picture when I asked for that, you know, that would have saved me five years because they would have found the brain tumor at that time. And, and it wasn't until I had the two knockout headaches. Um, and I had already given up. I was probably three years in out of being out of the kayak at that point. And I had just chalked it up to being old and washed up. And, you know, my thyroid medication was hypothyroidism, which at the end of the day, wasn't that big of a deal. Um, and I just had walked away and, and, and it was a tough decision. I mean, remember, you know, as I say in the film, the hole in my soul was the Indus. And I knew that if I was walking away from the sport at that point in the game, the Indus wasn't going to get, I wasn't, I wasn't going to get an opportunity to go run the Indus. Um, and, uh, you know, I walked away. I, I was not physically in a space to um, make kayaking second nature. And that's what it has to be to be successful um, at pulling off these big trips. And, and, and I was nowhere near that. I was a mere percentage of myself mm-hmm. by the three years out of the sport at that point. And then uh, I went another couple years before I had the two knockout headaches. And that was, you know, after the, I had one knockout headache on Christmas and then five days later, what I thought was a sinus infection, I ended up taking these Chinese herbs. And for whatever reason, the Chinese herbs uh, triggered something with the tumor and boom, I had a triple vision knockout headache. And that was on New Year's night. After I had gone to sushi, I came home to kind of go out for New Year's and, and ended up in bed that night. And, um, it was New Year's day. I, I took in a leave or something and, and didn't go and get anything checked out. And then January 2nd kind of was still hesitant to go get it checked out. And then January 3rd, I went in and, and, and told my doctor what had happened. And, and then, then he sent me in for a CT scan, not an MRI. And then, uh, I was probably halfway home and, uh, he's like, you need to come back. And then boom, it was like, you know, you got a brain tumor. And I, I was relieved. I was, um, I was like, Oh my God, like, you know, I finally have something to fight. I'm not chasing this ghost anymore. You know, I'm not chasing this like illness that, you know, I had chalked it up to literally thinking that I had picked something up in Africa or Asia that was like some virus or something that was just, you know, plaguing me you know, that it caused the autoimmune that was just something that I was going to have to live with for the rest of my life. And, and, you know, that's, and, and that, and that happens a lot, you know, a lot of people go, um, even to this day, you know, I'm a part of this organization called project Apollo and, and the whole basis of the organization is, um, people that are in search of a diagnosis, they're, they're suffering from an ailment or an illness and they don't know what's causing the ailment or the illness. They're in that gray zone. They're in that, you know, that I don't know what's wrong with me. Can you please just tell me what's wrong with me? And, and, right. and, you don't know. and, and there's so many people in that situation. There's so many people that are, that are in that situation. I have so much compassion for people that are not doing well and that are um, struggling to figure out what's wrong. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah. 
And and I agree with you, man, because it's like, you know, having an answer. And I think you articulated it really well. I mean, it wasn't just a ghost anymore. Now you had something to attack, address. I mean, you have a brain tumor. Because I, I equate it kind of like this, man. It's like people would say, what's the worst you could say if you go ask a girl to dance? No. I said, no, that's not the worst answer. The worst answer is, let me think about it. Or I'll get back to you. Because then you're walking across thinking, yeah, man, she said yes, but she didn't say yes. And now you're stuck in your own shoes wondering, like, now what the hell do I do? So, I mean, I totally get that. Mm -hmm. My question for you, Scott, you have a brain tumor and you didn't want to tell anybody then. Why? Well, I mean, as as with any sort of alpha male that has a massive ego that has built their entire life around being invincible and strong, um, cancer, brain tumor, all of that stuff uh, is a perceived weakness. And I spent my entire life not being weak. And the last thing I wanted was somebody feeling sorry for me. Um, And so the easier way to deal with that is to not let anybody know what's going on. And, you know, that's a scary place to be. Um, And that was probably the scariest place for me to be Um, because I was really screaming for help, but I didn't know how to ask for help. And I liken it to, um, I say this a lot uh, to friends of mine, Um, you know, uh, when you're in jail, right? And you uh, act out in jail. What do they do? Throw you in the hole. Right. And, and, and why do they throw you in the hole? They isolate you because they know that it is absolutely the most detrimental thing that you can do to the human spirit. Right. The worst. Can, yep. it, it's the absolute worst. Right. Neglect and, and isolation. Right. So what would be one thing worse than that? That would be self-inflicted isolation, right? You can see, you can feel, you can think, you can move, you can get out of bed, you can go somewhere on your own recognizance. You you don't, you know, nobody's saying that you can't walk out the front door and go for a run, but you can't because you're holding yourself back. And that is a very scary place to be. And so many people that are struggling with cancer, struggling with tumors, especially men. Um, And this is what really propelled me to tell my story. I mean, it's what gave me the strength. You know, my really close friend, Brad Ludden, he's the founder of First Descents. It's a um, adventure program for young adults with cancer and tumor and mental health. Awesome. And essentially what it is, is, is that, um, you know, in healthcare now, what happens is you get diagnosed and there's essentially three options for you. You have chemo, you have radiation and you get cut on surgery and you go through that process, right. And you come out the back end And there's nothing there, you know? So if you've had radiation on your brain, there's, there's a damage that's been caused there and the healing on the back end, there's no support. There's no, any of that stuff, really. They just kind of kick you to the curb. I mean, you blow out your knees, sure. You can go to PT, but that's not the same thing, right? It's not the same. And so, so many people and myself included 
they, they, they come out the back end and they're half of what they were or a quarter of what they were. Right. And then they don't have the support or they don't have a community for which they can talk about these things that are going on. And you, at least for me, I didn't want anyone to see me in that space. I, I had spent my entire life creating the story and this image in my head of what I wanted people to see. And I didn't want them to see me uh, curled up in a ball with a brain tumor. And I didn't want their sympathy. And, 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 and I didn't, I didn't have any tools to, to deal with that. I, my, mm-hmm. my entire life had kept me from uh, dealing with a scenario like that. And, um, and I got insanely lucky, insanely lucky. And, and, and because of the events that ended up happening, it ended up truly giving me the strength to, to tell my story um, mm-hmm. because I knew that it wasn't by accident that I had a sequence of events happen in a sequential order that brought these monumental awareness, uh, this monumental awareness, these, these shifts in my thinking that all of a sudden my entire life, I had tried to control everything in my life. Right. And, and think about somebody that tries to control everything in their life. Right. It is, um, it's, uh, it's, it's so up and down, right. It's like, I got an A, I failed that class. Fuck that teacher. You know, that mentality of like, I'm winning, I'm losing, I'm winning, I'm losing. And that pull, right. And when I realized that no matter how hard I tried, no matter what I did health-wise, alternative health modalities, uh, diet, all of these things to try to make my brain tumor go away or cancer or whatever it is that you're battling, it doesn't mean it's going to go away. And in fact, it can actually get worse no matter how hard you try. And so I had this aha moment where I was like, if I can't control what's in my head, what do I actually have control of? I don't have control of anything. And that brought me so much freedom in my heart and in my soul, because all, at that very moment, I stopped controlling everything in my life. I stopped trying to control the outcomes of everything. Now, does that mean that you don't show up? No, you show up. You show up with your heart. You take your ego, you take your intellect out of it. And if it doesn't work out with the way that you hoped it had worked out, you use that as a pivot to grow. You use that as a pivot to change. And then to not, I I never had a problem with change because of, my mentality on the river, river is always changing. It's the most beautiful thing about 
a river is that it's always changing and it's never the same. It's the same thing in life. Life is always changing and it's never the same. And why would you try to control that? And here I had the perfect metaphor on the river, right? And so I just let go. And that really allowed me to open up and ask for help. And then that allowed me to get help. And that's the other thing, getting the right help, right? It's such a trick, you know, okay, I want to get help. And then you go to some therapist and you don't connect with the therapist and you're like instantly like, well, that therapy shit doesn't work, you know? And you get put off by it or you have a bad experience. And like I said, it was literally like every door that I kept opening, I kept having these monumental thoughtful shifts in the way that I thought about things. And I just felt like I, you know, when initially the film was set to be about the history of kayaking and river running. And the film was never meant to be about my life story. It was never meant to be um, about me. I mean, I was the main character and I was going to facilitate this whole sort of historical thing. And then, you know, about two years in rush reached out and was like, Hey, I, I think I want to make a film for the broader audience. And I think the story, I think your story is more important than the history of the sport of kayaking. Mm-hmm. And, um, it took me a couple weeks to wrap my head around that because I knew that I had to be extremely vulnerable at that point. And Rush knew enough, the director and producer of the film, Rush Sturges. And um, I thought about it and um, I was like, let's do it, kid. You know? And yeah. It's fantastic way you articulated that, man. I really appreciate it. It's the essence of life, man. When... Which was a bigger hinge moment, though? You having the brain tumor or you get busted for, um, you know, the Dewey? Mm, it was um, it was a combination of, of things. You know, the brain tumor was diagnosed, um, you know, uh, February 3rd, 2015. Surgery was a month later. I'm sorry, January 3rd, uh, 2015. Surgery was a month later, February 3rd, 2015. And then uh, I came out of surgery. And as in the film, I physically started healing. Like it was insane. Like I started, my ears were clear from the first time my head actually felt lighter. Like there was like this, like, holy cow, like my head feels lighter. Um, uh and I had my equilibrium, my balance. I, I felt like I had, even though I was in my late thirties, early forty. I think it was like forty at that time. I, I yeah, I forget. Let's see, two thousand fifteen. So yeah, I was like forty one at the time. Um, I was, I was physically feeling like I was thirty again. It was crazy. And that's what really inspired me to eventually get back in the kayak. But I was, um, I hadn't dealt with anything. You know, I had started practicing yoga three years before and I had done a little bit of meditation, but I really hadn't done um, the personal work to work through my childhood, to work through 
what they call uh, a negative love pattern. Have you ever heard the term negative love pattern before? I've heard it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for your audience, maybe a negative love pattern is something that say, I like to explain it, like say from the zero, from the ages of like, say zero and seven years old, um, you're a dependent, right? Upon whoever your caregiver is, whether it be your parents or whoever. And, um, you are neuropathically being wired and you are absorbing your surroundings behaviors neuropathically. And my belief and several other people's beliefs is that those neuropathways, once they're set in stone, they are your sort of hard wire as to like how you sort of work through the rest of your life. Um, and I had never addressed any of the things that happened to me as a kid. And those behaviors as a kid had shown up as an adult. And I was so unbelievably unaware. I, I knew that I would get triggered by something and it would cause an instant reaction for me to either run, inebriate, go kayak, it would just, you know, instantly, you know, some sort of, you know, and, and it could be as, as simple as like a lot of people like, well, like, what do you mean? You know, it's like, well, it, if you have a parent, you know, and we all have parents and, and your parent does this one little thing and it instantly triggers you to have a, an emotional childlike response. You know, you're instantly fired back or your, your wife or your significant other says something that instantly triggers you and pushes a button and, and you instantly fire back. And I had these triggers that were causing these behaviors and I was aware of them, but I didn't know how to make them stop. And I was just repeating the behaviors and it was this, this vicious cycle of behaviors and patterns that were affecting my life in a negative way, in a really, really negative way. And I struggled for a long time. And even after I got the second, even after I got the, uh, the DUI, um, I um, still didn't have a plan. I still didn't know how to make all this stop. I mean, I was hurting inside. I was physically feeling better, but I was just falling back into everything that I had known that had worked for me in the past. I didn't have any tools. And then, um, you know, I met Patricia, the, my girlfriend at the time in the film. And, you know, I, I had a very low emotional IQ and she had done a ton of work herself on a whole plethora of things that had happened to her. And, um, and then there was probably 50 or so different books that I tore through and I just started to shape and feel and change and perspective. And, and yeah, it, it just, it, as I started to grow emotionally, um, it just, it just started to, everything just started to shift. Um, yeah. And so like during this time, I mean, you still have, um, I mean, you talked about that hole in your heart, right? I mean, you still had the last, uh, the Indus 
they still wanted to run. And obviously, I mean, there was a progression going to that. Walk us through then that part. Yeah. So the film is, um, it doesn't really, you know, when I got back in the kayak, um, I had no intention of running Indus. Right. None whatsoever. I, I was literally just ready to bring the river back into my life. Right. So that, that, so that was all, that was gone. That was no longer there. But Indus was gone. Yeah. 100% gone. I was not, I had no desire to go run the Indus. And I had a friend uh, reach out to me and he was, you know, in his mid fifties, a guy that I had traveled the world with and kayaked a bunch with. And he, there's a river up in British Columbia. It's called uh, the Stikine. And it's kind of like our Mavericks or pipeline. It's kind of the proving grounds for expedition kayaking. Um, it's, you know, it's a staple. If you're one of those people that want to sort of establish yourself within the community uh, trip down the Grand Canyon and the Stikine is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, the, is one of the ultimate proving grounds. It's, it's a really super radical trip and it's up on the Alaskan Canadian uh, border and, and uh, it's, it's, it can be done in, a, well, now some of the kids are doing it in a day, but back in the day it was done in three days. And, uh, and so my friend that I had done, I had done a, a lap with him, uh, a bunch of, you know, 20 something years prior wanted to go back in there. And he reached out to me when he had heard that I had gotten back in the kayak a little bit. He was like, Hey, you know, you want to go up to the Stikine and, and do the skiing? I was like, man, Jer, I don't, I'm not in a space and let me sit in the kayak for a little while and see if I can get back some of the stuff that I lost. And so I started kind of getting back into it. I struggled a bunch and really long story short, as I was kind of training for the Stikine, uh, you know, not really committed to going or anything, right. that's, I ended up in Idaho. And that's when, um, you know, I ended up with annual, um, you know, the, the, um, the Red Bull kid, um, yeah. and says he's, he, you know, and, and we ended up in the car together and, you know, I, I, at a gas station, right? Well, no. So we were at an event. It was a, what it was okay. is the North Fork, uh, is the North Fork championships. It's an extreme race on the North Fork of the Payette in Idaho. Okay. And, um, and I was at a hotel and he was staying at the same hotel and I had known annual, we had met, you know, uh, a few times before, and he was headed up to the river to go do a lap on the river. And I was sitting in the parking lot, packing my stuff up to head up stream and he's like hey man can i catch a ride and i was like yeah you know absolutely jump in and so you know he asked me you know on the way up you know he started asking me about the same po because that was my you know of all the things that i'd done it was kind of the one thing that i got the most publicity for you know the this thing po was a cover story in outside magazine it, you know i ended up airing on nbc right after a uh uh, NCAA uh, basketball game in the Sweet 16 or something like that, and and uh, ended up, you know, probably for kayaking at the time got the most attention of any any sort of expedition that had ever been done before, and and he knew about it, and 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 it, you know the Sang Po is even still to this day 
it's probably one of the most insane rivers in the world. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, by the time it reaches the Bay of Bengal, it's the sixth largest river in the world. It's the only river in the Himalaya that starts on the Tibetan side and slices straight through the Himalaya and ends up in the plains of India. And it's like a 12,000 foot drop over 150 miles. And you just do the mathematical equation and it's just this, and it's in Shangri-La. It's in the most untouched, you know, part of the world that is just not many people have, you know, explored. And, um, you know, he started asking me questions about the Sangpo and, you know, did I think, you know, somebody could get back in there and, and there's a political component, there's a financial component, um, there's a water level component, there's a weather component. So there's just all these factors that made that expedition so insanely special. And, um, you know, I told him, you know, my dream, you know, uh, back in the day, my dream was to try to run all four rivers. And he's like, well, what was the final river? And I was like, we know that the, the Indus is the final fourth river. And he's like, I'm, I'm going over to Pakistan to go run the Indus. You should come. And I was like, there's no way, there's no way. I'm not even remotely close to being in shape enough to go run the Indus. I, I had already known how difficult it was. Um, and so, uh, but I knew that it was an opportunity that I couldn't turn down. And so we went and tried to get me a, a visa to go that first year. And this is what's not in the film. And I got denied that first year and annual and a few other friends ended up going over and running the Indus that year. And, and then, uh, it's probably, it's probably a good thing though, right? Oh, it was a blessing. Yeah. It was a hundred percent. It was a blessing because what ended up happening was they ended up calling me from Gilgit. Um, and right after they got out done and they said, Hey man, we've worked out a visa for you to come the following year. And we all want to come back and make it happen. And that's when I was just like, Holy shit, I've got a year to get my, to get my shit together. Yeah. And that's when the dream became real at that point. And, and I was like, okay, um, you know, if I die trying, if I get hurt and, and literally I gave myself like a 5% chance, you know, I, I didn't want to like raise my expectations that I was going, but I didn't like, I wasn't going to, I was going to put my heart and soul into it. But I also too was like, if it, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be, I'm not yeah. going to force it. And I knew that I had to make it second nature for me to feel comfortable to go do it. Right. And so let, that, let me, let me ask you a question, Scott, how did your approach to the water then change? Because it was always hard in the fuck up. I mean, I could see where the training would come into play, but how, how did your approach change from what it was when you were a lot younger? Well, so the biggest change was that I was still able to, to, I found it natural, obviously for me to fall back into pattern on the right. river. Right. Oh, right, right. That was, I was, I had programmed myself my whole life to operate that way. So I fell back into that behavior, like, like, yeah, like butter on bread, no problem, you know? Um, but this time I wasn't coming off river trips with the baggage. I was, I, I was, I was basically now like in a very healthy way, I was compartmentalizing and I was leaving that behavior on the river. So how did you, 
And I don't mean to interrupt, but this is the part that's no, no. fascinating to me, right? Like you're, you're training, you're getting better. You're approaching again, kind of as a novice, but you have all these skills with you. You do a run. And then how did you transition then into real life? Like from that, like, I mean, I'm sure you do a run, you feel great instead of, well, let's do a bender. Cause I want to feel even better. How did you have, yeah. how did you compartmentalize it? How'd you deal with it then? Well, I think it was, it was the, you know, it was no longer, it was, it was literally having the awareness that I no longer needed these coping mechanisms that I had used in the past. I was able to let go of those coping mechanisms. Um, and instead of like inebriating or instead of running, I was, I had the emotional awareness and the tools at that point to be able to, um, to navigate life off of the river. You know, the river kind of came back after I had learned how to navigate life without the river. So I just, I it was just really about putting the two together and separating like emotionally where I needed to be, to be healthy. And that was just, you know, all, all through all the work and letting go and, and, and having this, um, you know, and being mentally healthy, right. And emotionally healthy, um, that, that, that allowed me to just, you know, and, and sharing, you know, sharing my, my experiences, um, you know, it was something that, you know, I, I, I wasn't novice, you know, like at kayaking, I was still, I was still pretty good at kayaking. Yeah, and I apologize for that. Right. that descriptor, no, but. I, I just want to like, not to, don't apologize. It's, 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 it's absolutely true. What, so one of the things that was happening was that, you know, I could go in my backyard here in California and there's, a, you know, all kinds of class five runs and runs that I have memorized, like every move. If, if there's like a one run in particular, that's right down the road, it's got 50 rapids in it. And I can tell you, I, I push on my left foot. I pick my right knee up. I sit up in a certain way. I take a right stroke to then move into a left stroke. I have the whole thing memorized, right? Yeah. Top to bottom. But that isn't what was lost. What was lost is my reactionary kayaking where I was on something that I didn't have memorized. And then all of a sudden I lose plan A and I'm in plan B and I didn't have that ability. I had lost that reactionary sort of that paddling, you know? Um, and, and so that's where the kids were so helpful in that. Like I, they, they, I, it allowed me to sit behind them and just follow them and just get back. And the sport had grown a lot too. You know, these kids had taken the sport to a whole nother level. And so, you know, what I had, I had totally alleviated my ego at that point. And I had alleviated the story that I had told myself forever, you know, and, and imagine, you know, somebody with as many accolades and as many river expeditions and as much respect as I had gotten through the years of being at the top of the game. And now all of a sudden, you know, asking for help with, you know, to a bunch of kids that are half my age, essentially, and, and, and uh, taking my ego out of that because I needed them to help me get back in shape. 
And, and that was what one of the most amazing parts in, 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 in this whole journey, um, is that I was able to, um, separate and, 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 and let go of my ego to where I could take that input and take that feedback. And they were able to not ostracize me for being the weakest link. And that was a huge flip. That was a huge flip because if it would have been me and somebody would have came up to me that was 40 something years old as a kid and said, Hey, I got a brain tumor. I want to come on one of your expeditions. I would have been like, beat it. No way. You're too much of a liability. I don't want the responsibility of, of dealing with that. That's too risky. And the kids did just the opposite of that. And that, you know, I it just filled my heart so much and I was so grateful. And then I grew, I just, started, you know, and, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to run everything in there, but I knew that I, you know, I got to a space to where I felt comfortable. I didn't get hurt. I didn't kill myself and yeah, got the opportunity. And so when you get to the Indus too, I mean, um, watching an wet exit on that very first rapid was pretty intense because here's one of the best, right? And he, I mean, he yeah. has a swim that very first one that must've mm. been a rush, man. Yeah. I mean, we knew like, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, obviously it's tricky, right? Cause it sets a tone Yeah, and setting a tone is, is really difficult. Um, you know, you want the tone to be positive and when you have, you know, the best, one of the best kids in your group swim right out the gate, that sets a tone. And so, um, but that kid's such a savage operator. I mean, it, it phased them. Um, to a certain extent, but you know, that's part of being a hardened criminal in, 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 in whitewater kayaking is that, you know, it's unlike any other sport, um, you know, you get into these zones and you have something like that happen. It's not like you can just jump up and, and, and walk out a lot of times, you know, right. there's a lot of times where you're locked into zones and you have to perform. You have to, there is no way out other than downriver. You know, that wasn't no, no the time out there. Yeah. No time out. Yeah. And, and that wasn't the case in this particular instance, you know, annual did have the ability to walk up to the road at this particular moment, but our entire lives, you know, annuals included mine included, we had been put in those situations a million times over where, you know, we've locked in a Canyon, no exit other than downstream, no, you know, anything. And so you, you know, you have to emotionally turn that feeling off of like, I just got absolutely annihilated. I almost freaking drowned right there. I'm not feeling the best and you have to bury that stuff and, and uh, pull your shit back together. And that's why you surround yourself with those like-minded people in those situations, because um, that's what it takes to be successful in that environment. And then when you finish that, the Indus, you complete your, I mean, it's, it's a lifelong journey whenever you start paddling. Yeah. What, um, what two questions, number one, talk us through what that, what that was like. And then how long again, has that feeling lasted for you? Well, I've always like the movie does, you know, the, the movie is the movie and, and Rush did such an amazing job. I personally don't know that there's any 
I, I, I don't hold the accomplishment of running all four rivers. Um, you know, I was set to go run the Indus without any cameras. Initially, I was set to go over. It was only two weeks before I was set to go run the Indus that Rush actually reached out and was like, hey, we're thinking about coming over and shooting the Indus and doing... Initially, the whole thing started out as a 10-minute YouTube video. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, when there, there were... You know, I was set to just go over, quietly run the Indus and disappear, you know, and and in my accomplishment in running the Four Rivers, I, I, I just don't know that there's much there personally. I, I feel like for me, the the accomplishment is really the journey, right? And, and, and how I came out the back end of it, the, the feather and the cap is really maybe the Indus if you, if you look at it like that, but I'm the feather in my cap is that I'm grateful that I got to experience that and that I'm in a healthy space and that I had awareness around that healthy space and that I was able to share it with like some of the most amazing people in the world. And, and the accolade of it is arbitrary really in the whole scheme of things. So um, elaborate into that a little bit more about the process being more important than the product. Yeah, it's the process that what is, it's the process that, um, that, uh, really like sings to me, you know, it's what really changed my idea that like my tumor was a strength, not a weakness. My battle with my tumor is not a weakness. It's a strength. Like my relationship with my family, my girlfriend, my, uh, with the river, like that's what's of value here. The, the product is just, you know, it's just a, something that came along with it, but I just don't put much value in it. It doesn't change anything. You know, for me, it doesn't change anything. It's not like when I go to have a conversation with someone that comes up, you know, I, I, I don't put value in that. I put value in connection. I put value in, um, sharing. I put value in, uh, experiencing things. And, and that's, that is fulfilling, right? That's super fulfilling. That, um, that brings light. That doesn't bring dark, right? How do you take that mentality of being able to focus on the process? Cause you know, that's more important, the connection. Like, how do you take that approach into, um, an endeavor kind of stepping into the next, whatever the next is going to be. How do you take that approach into it instead of it just being about the result? Well, I think I answered this a little bit earlier, but I, yeah. I, I, you don't, no, I, like, I like it so much, Scott. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I don't, um, if look, if, if you show up with your ego and you show up with your intellect and you show up with the story that you've told yourself, right? And you experience failure, right? And you let your ego and your intellect get in the way of that. 
the highs and lows of that are just, it's just such a tumultuous way to move through life. You don't need to have that. And instead, imagine if you don't put value in any of that stuff, but you just show up. And and, and, and I'm not saying don't give it 100%. Of course, right. give it 100%. And of course, you put your heart and soul into it. But like, if there's change to be had, like, I don't believe in negative change anymore. Like, I, I don't believe in, like, if, if, if it doesn't go the way that I set an intention for it to go, it's a learning opportunity to change and to make adjustments, to refine and to maybe if it's a full blown, like, okay, this isn't for me, or if it's just a slight little shift to kind of help with the outcome that you're trying to get. But like, I don't put energy in the outcome anymore. Um, because if it wasn't meant, if it wasn't meant to, to happen, it, it, it's not going to happen. And, and whether you call that luck or whether you call that, um, you know, it's something that I struggle with a lot too, with so many people that play the victim, you know, it's so easy to, that's not fair. That wasn't, you know, that was mean, or, you know, you, you're constantly like, everyone's out to get you, you know, and, and you fall into those thought patterns and, uh, and, and it's so detrimental to your progress moving forward. And when you're in that state of mind, right. And you're acting that way, right. What does that do to people, right. That, that pushes people away that doesn't bring people closer. Right. And so if you're able to just open that door and be open to going any direction you want, you're basically in the flow of the river. You're in the middle of the river and you've got a horizon line and you're about to run a rapid and you're trying to go a certain place in the rapid, but there's a chance you may not end up in the place that you want to go. And what do you do? Do you just give up and roll upside down and swim? No, you, you, you shift, you change, you go to plan B, you go to plan C, you go to plan D, you go to plan F and you don't give up and you don't emotionally you know, uh, come down on yourself. You don't sit there and, Oh my God, that rapid was so terrible to me. Right. That doesn't work. Right. In that situation. So why would it work in life? It doesn't, it doesn't work in life. And, and, and all it does is end up making you like not show up. It makes you hibernate. It makes you isolate. It pushes people away. It's just a, savage way to roll through life in my humble opinion yeah well you put it you put it eloquently my man put it really good i mean what um appreciate that so much what what last question scott what should i be sharing that or what should i be asking that that i haven't asked oh i don't know i think you've done a really good job here i mean um, I think if, if you can learn, somebody said, um, 
you know, if you had one thing that you could tell someone and I always come back to surrendering to the flow of life, right? If you try to fight the flow of life, if you try to fight the flow of a river, it never works. And so why would you try to fight that? Why would you try to, why, why wouldn't you surrender to that? Instead of like looking at my tumor as a weakness or as a something that's holding me back, I, I look at it as a gift. I look at it as to propel me. Um, people have asked me, are you afraid to die? Dying is dead easy. It's living that's hard, right? It's, it's, it's making it day to day that's hard. Once you're on the other side, you're on the other side. I've never been afraid to go to the other side. What terrifies me the most is sucking out of a straw for the rest of my life or being having some sort of paralysis to be able to see and, 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 and smell, but not be able to feel that absolutely is my greatest fear in life. But like, do I have the ability to control that? No. So why would I try to control that? And, 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 and why not surrender? to that and surrender to that flow in your journey and see where it takes you. And, and that's like the most amazing, beautiful expedition there is in life. Doesn't get any better because that's what life is. It's just one big expedition. When, when I was paddling, I remember one of the senior guides, uh, I was asking, cause it was weird. We put like, Three quarters of a mile, three quarters of a mile up in flat water. So the whole first part of the trip was always, and I was guiding, right? It was always just a lot of flat water, man. And we'd play games, stuff like that. So why don't we put in closer? You know, why do we put it? And I kind of phrased it like this. I said, why do we put it in the same place all the time? And he said, Rob, he said, you never put into the river at the same place. I said, what do you mean? I said, that river now has changed because the water that you entered the one time in is already gone. So you're at a different place. And that, I don't know why that always struck with me, but that was, that was always pretty. It's a hundred percent true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an, it's incredibly. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're on a, you know, free flowing river that hasn't been all, you know, alternated, you know, and something that's not being released out of a dam where you're on mm -hmm. the pole, you know, if you've ever been on a river in the jungle or in the Himalayas where, you're on a diurnal or you're on a rain fed river where, you know, the thing is just constantly shifting, you know, and it's just doing this the entire time. And to have that relationship um, is amazing, you know, to, to feel that pulse, to feel that heartbeat and, and uh, it's nature. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what we are. We're in nature. It's in, and to connect with nature, you know, we've seen that with first ascents so much, you know, it's, it's, it's this incredible community and, and you can basically apply to, you know, if you're between the ages of 18 and 40 and you have some sort of, you know, ailment that's going on, you can apply. And for free, if you get accepted, you can get sponsored to go on these week long adventures and what we've seen hands down is these people that 
like have like grown up in the city or lived under neon lights their whole life or in these crazy work environments where they've never spent any time outdoors and you put them in nature and you put them in community and the power of that, the healing of that is unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. And, and that is what has made that organization such an incredible uh, organization and, and the work that they're doing to, um, to develop community and to expose people to nature. It's, it's absolutely changing. And I have so many stories, including my own, where people's health has, they would come on an, an adventure and then they would go home and they would change their entire environment and detrimental, like, like going from this detriment environment to this healthy environment. And, and then all of a sudden having this new community of like-minded people that are dealing with the same sorts of situations and, and they're in nature and all of a sudden they're in remission. All of a sudden their, their cancer is slowing down. All of a sudden their spirit has been lit. You know, all of a sudden they're connecting, you know, they're alive. They're not, somebody that's been radiated that's sitting in an office and that, you know, yeah. No, it's awesome, man. I'm going to put a link in this, uh, in the show notes to first ascent as well. I would be so grateful for that. That would be amazing. Absolutely, man. And I, one more question since we're on (laughs) man. first ascent, you helping out and, and being a part of it, you donate your time, but my question is this is, do you think that you help them out more or do you think they help you out more? Oh, I, I think it's, it's mutual. You know, I've known the founder, Brad, since he was a kid, you know, he was in my movies when he was a kid and, and we had traveled the world. And I remember we were in Africa, actually, we were in Uganda right around 2000. And, you know, he, he, we were at the bar, we'd just gotten off the Nile Bujigali, not Murchison. And he's like, Hey man, I'm, I'm thinking about starting a, um, a kid's cancer program and adventure program. And I was like, that's incredible. You know, he wanted to do it with his mom and, and, um, you know, it started out super small where he was just doing, you know, one or two events a year and pre COVID, I think they were up to 1500 events. And then, you know, post COVID now, I, I don't know what the number is for this year, but this is the first year that we're kind of that, that is back in action. Right. And, you know, my contribution to first ascents is, is, uh, in small comparison compared to what Brad and Ray and, and their entire team has done. I mean, just from the fundraising component and, and the adventure programs that they've put together, you know, I'm just one very small piece to that puzzle. Well, yeah. I meant in terms of, oh. In, in terms of like those that participate in the actual program, do you think you help them out or do you think they help you out? Both. That's what's so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's both because you're, you're, you know, for people that say are somebody like myself that has gone through this. Right. And, 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 and sure my experience and my journey is what it is and, and, and you can take from it what you want, but there's nothing like community, you know, and, and that's ultimately at the end of the day, what this is doing is it's bringing people together that are, that are battling very similar situations. And, you know, my, my, one of the things that came up, you know, with, 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 uh, with Brad and I, you know, we were, we were in South America together. This is just like three years ago. And, um, 
and we were we were on the river and and we were talking about you know everything that was going on at first ascents and and he's like hey man you know we're struggling a little bit right now and 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 maybe you can give me some insight as to like what's going on here and uh he's like look our applicants that we're getting we're getting something like 85 percent or 80 or 85 percent of the applicants are female and only 15 or 20 percent are men and i was like i I was like i know why and and i sat down and basically had the same conversation that i had with you right now guys don't want to open up right they they don't they want to isolate want to open up they they play the victim role they're they're weak they don't want to face the world because they're less than whole and and, you know we have been wired our entire lives you look at the mentality of war you look at the you look back and you know generations hunter gatherer you know like what man is supposed to do for family what man is supposed to do for work what man is supposed to do athletically like all of these sorts of things we are wired predispositioned as this thing and the second that you become wounded or that you become mentally incapacitated or you become diagnosed with something that is going to affect your performance a lot of people a majority of men are not wired to deal And, and so what happens they shut down and they don't want anyone to know and they isolate And that's a fucked up place to be. Scott, thanks so much, man, for, uh, for the time, the insight. We're going to post those links on there, man, but I really appreciate it, man. Ah, Thanks for having me, Dr. Rob. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to mental toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.